number 18. And we've been working through from the front to the back of the book. This is a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the Christians, the young Christians in Colossae. They've received Christ as their Lord and Savior. They don't know how to live, with, live for Him in this Roman-ruled city. Uh, and this church is mix, a mix of Jews who've come to Christ and uh, um, uh, Gentiles that have come to Christ. Uh, so all kinds of different religious people have come together in their faith. And now they need to understand, how do we live for Jesus? In, with the lives that we have, with the community we have, how do we make Jesus number one? And Paul starts this letter and writes uh, to them to help them because he hasn't been able to make it there. So he hasn't even met them face to face just yet. Um, And and there's a couple of things. The first few minutes of this morning are going to be a little bit like theological school. So just give me grace. Uh, For those of you who don't want to be at school on Sunday, I mean, Holly's doing year 12 exams. The last thing he wants is another five minutes of school. But uh, here we are. Actually, thank you for the worship this morning, Holly. I know you're in the middle of your exams and just appreciate um, you serving us in that way. A um, couple of things. Christian theology is meant to be practical and practiced. It's not supposed to be academic or just intellectual. So it's okay to ask this question when we're thinking about theology. So what? God is omniscient. So what? God is omnipresent. So what? God, it's a good question to ask because we've got to bring it down to being practical. What Paul does is in, through this letter, is he kind of creates this, this is the way you can imagine it, that there's marionettes, that we are marionettes, we're puppets on strings, and theology is like the, the piece of wood that the, that the, uh, the puppet master hold, holds and moves around, and God is the puppet master. And, God is a, and what Paul does is he shows us things that are true about who God is, and then he, through these sentences, he draws down these strings that connect to our lives so that they can animate, the truths about God can animate our hands and our feet and how we use the oxygen in our lungs and how we form words and how we speak to one another and what we do with the thoughts in our minds and what we do with our time and our energy and ambitions and goals and uh, how we choose a variety of things. All of that can be animated through, by, by theology, by who God is. And that's what Paul is doing. He brings it all the way down. So Christian theology has to be practical. If it's just up here, if you just know a lot of stuff, it doesn't matter. Josh said a few weeks ago, religious activity without Jesus is meaningless. So is religious knowledge. Without knowing how it's supposed to empower your life, it, it's a waste of time. You, we have truth so that we can stand on it, we can build on it, we can live on it. And we need, sometimes we need a bit of help, just like the Colossians did, to understand how. That points to the second theological thing I just want to teach real quick. is when Paul writes, and it's not obvious, but it will suddenly be obvious as soon as you hear it, he writes in two different moods. He writes in an indicative mood, and he writes in an imperative mood. And theologically what that means is, indicative means it's just actual facts. You just take it in. One plus one is two. That's an indicative. One plus one is two. Just take it in. You don't have to question it. You don't have to go, well, I don't think it's, that's not truth to me. It may be truth to you, but it's not truth to me. One plus one is two, no matter what your gender, your race, your uh, nationality, your age, it doesn't matter. One plus one is two, right? So he writes in that mood, and then there's the imperative mood. There's a command. What are you supposed to do? And you'll see those two moods. What's interesting, and you can go read all of Paul's letters, and this is important because it gets straight to the gospel. Paul never gives an imperative before an indicative, which means simply this. Nothing you do 
will ever add or take away from your salvation. Everything you do is in light of what he has done. Right? So, Paul, Paul will say, let me just show you, actually. Um, let's see this letter. Colossians, if we go to, to number one. Here's, here's an indicator. Before we do that, let me, let me try to help you along. Um, tell me which one's indicative, a command, which, or just an actual fact, and which one's an imperative, a command, like a request. Do something about it. I say to my wife, this happened this week, but I didn't win. Just like Malcolm didn't win and he ended up in Hong Kong. said, I love you so much. Please buy those shoes. Which, which part of that sentence is the indicative? The, the first part. What, which is? I, I love you so much. That's an actual fact. And then what did I ask her to do? Please buy those shoes. Why was I asking her to buy those shoes? Get, come with me. Why? You're whispering. I can see your mouth moving, but I can't hear you. I might be deaf. Loudly. Because I love her so much, please buy those shoes. Whether she buys those shoes or doesn't buy those shoes, does that change the the indicative? No. She didn't buy those shoes. I was disappointed she didn't buy those shoes, but she stands before God with her own convictions, and she also said, I just don't feel comfortable to buy these shoes. Okay. But it doesn't change. I love her. That's the indicative, not the imperative. If I switched it around, if it wasn't the gospel of Jesus, if it was the gospel of works that you have to be good enough, it would have been buy those shoes if you want me to love you. Then if she doesn't buy those shoes, I can withhold my love. Do you you understand? Paul never, ever, ever does that. It's always because of Christ. Please do this. The sun has come up. It's Monday. Children, put on your clothes and get ready for school. If they don't put on their clothes and get ready for school, the sun has still come up and it's still Monday. And that's wonderful because it settles our hearts in the goodness of Jesus. Just take a real quick look. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. Is all of that indicative or imperative? Indicative. It's all just actual fact. This is just who Jesus is. This is just what Jesus has done. What do you do with actual facts? You accept them. You, you can be hard-hearted and say, well, I don't know. You can question them, that's okay. But if they're actual facts, the best thing to do with them are to receive them. The gospel is good news. The best thing to do with good news is to just receive it. And that's it. Then let's look for, there's an indicative and imperative. Verse 21. And you who once were alienated and hostile in your mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. What, what is that, indicative or imperative? Uh, a command, an actual command, uh, sorry, an actual fact or a command to do? An actual fact. He has done this for you. He has reconciled you. On his cross, he was being punished for your sins and he's been raised to life for you. 
it's, you just receive it. And then Paul moves across, and the, and the English if gets us a bit confused there. But if indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel you heard. The, not shifting from the gospel you heard. Here's what Christ has done for you. What should you, what should you do? Just continue trusting him. Continue trusting him. Don't shift from the gospel. Just stand on it. The alternative is you can think, I have to do something to make myself acceptable to God. That's the alternative. Paul goes, don't do that. Here's the truth. Now build your life on it. Right? It's powerful, beautiful. And we come to this, we're building it to to our text this morning. Um, Chapter 3, just turn there, just the first verse. If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Paul says both there. If you have been raised with Christ, if this is an actual fact that Jesus' death and resurrection is enough to settle God's, uh, your account with God and God forgives you through the blood of Jesus Christ and you are now seated with Christ in a, myst- in a way that we can't even understand, that we are alive in Christ, that we are going to live eternally with Him for- forever, If that's the truth, then seek the things that are eternal. Seek the things that he loves. Seek the things that he wills. And Paul's using the indicative and the imperative. In other words, you could say it this way. If you're not alive in Christ, then don't bother even trying to live for him. Because nothing you do is ever going to make you you fully acceptable. Jesus has done that. God has done that. But if you are alive in Christ, if you are seated with him, if you do trust him, why not let that affect every single thing about your life? Why not live from that truth? Do you see what Paul's doing? And now he's showing us. I, 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 did, I gave you that, that quick, sorry, that quick theological lesson because we can so quickly move, shift towards thinking that our good or bad behavior affects our standing with the Lord and forget so quickly that it's Jesus' standing uh, that, that d- determines our relationship with God. And it's Jesus' love and Jesus' hand that holds us. And all the activity that moves from our lives, the values that change, our countercultural lives that start to happen, the differences, as Esther got up here and said, you know, we had a big weekend, and then suddenly realized what she meant by that and what the culture means by that are two different things. They sound the same, but they're different. As our lives change, Paul says that that's the natural result of what he has done. He says we are being, in Corinthians 1.15, he says we are being transformed into the image of his likeness. 2 Corinthians 3 verse 18. We are being transformed little by little into the image of Jesus Christ. We're becoming like him. All right. Let's get to the text. I want to try to get you to recite this with me because I, I want to say it a few times because it's going to be really helpful. You, you, it will make sense just now. Just learn this with me. It's not the gospel. Just say that. It's not the gospel. It's because of the gospel. And it's a window into the gospel. Okay, let's try it. It's not the gospel. It's because of the gospel. And it's a window into the gospel. Okay, we're going to go for the trifecta now. Let me just do it and then you do it. It's not the gospel. It's because of the gospel. And it's a window into the gospel. 
Outstanding. I wish I was as smart as all of you. All right, we're going to say a few times this morning, it's not the gospel. That's not the thing. But it's because of the gospel. It's an outworking of the gospel. And it's a window into the gospel. It can help people be, you ever go window shopping? People look in to see something. The window is not the thing they're trying to see, but they can see through the window at something beautiful. And we're going to look at some things that are not the gospel, but they're because of the gospel, and they are actual windows to help people see into the gospel and become curious about Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, let me read it to you real quick. Don't turn there. I just want to, it's a good, it's a good summation of what the gospel is, because we keep using this word, and as Malcolm and Lizzie reminded me, they spent, 50, they spent about six months in the church going, what do they keep going on about the gospel for? But it is something that just gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Paul says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you have been saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you first of importance what I also received. Here's what Paul summarizes the gospel as. That Jesus Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. That Jesus was buried that Jesus was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Peter, then to the Twelve, and He goes on to just give the record, then He appeared to the others. That's the Gospel, that Jesus died for our sins, that He was buried, and that He has risen to life. Therefore, He has authority to call whom He chooses and to save them. All right, that's the Gospel. So when we say something's not the Gospel, that's what we mean. We mean, this isn't something that can save you. But it's something that's the result of being saved by Jesus, of belonging to Him. All right. In the pagan world, in the ancient world, when the Colossians lived, they all had household codes, whether they were Jewish or whether they were Greeks. They had household codes, rules for how people in the family had to act, had to behave. So so roles within the family. The household, though, wasn't just dad and mom and kids. The household was, was husband, wife, children and slaves and when we talk about slaves or when we read about slaves we mustn't think transatlantic slave trade it's 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 not that evil horrible racist thing when we read about in scriptures when someone is when paul says slaves here it's someone who has you know their country's either been uh, overtaken by another country and so now you know caesar's over uh his empire rome's roman empires come in and so now those who've been uh, undone by Rome, you know, they have, they're subservient to this other nation, or it's someone who just w- was in poverty and sold themselves into a position to get money, to get work, to, to get a job, and they become part of this person's household. Um, there's a responsibility this person has to them, and they can earn some money, and then they can buy back their freedom at times. Uh, it's different. It doesn't make it okay, it doesn't make it, but it's definitely not the evil of the transatlantic slave trade. Uh, don't imagine that. Um, and so we're going to look at that, and... Um, Let's read the first thing. It says, verse 18, Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Oh, boy. Paul never imagined uh, Australia 2019 when he wrote that so freely, did he? Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. All right. Um, Steph, won't you throw up the first uh, slide? If you, are the slides good to go? Great. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. This parallels the book of Ephesians exactly. 
And in the book of Ephesians, Paul opens it up a little bit more. He extrapolates it. In Colossians, we get the headline. In Ephesians, we get a paragraph a little bit more. But it follows directly. This comes in Ephesians and in Colossians. This comes straight after he's told the believers, the brothers and sisters, to submit one to another, to make each other more important than yourselves. That's our slogan, logo, uh, not, not, not logo, motto as a church, Jesus above all, others before me. And this comes straight after, both in Colossians and Ephesians, Paul says, to submit to one another, to bear with one another, to forgive one another, to put each other before ourselves. And out, but now he comes and he rewrites the domestic code, the household code. Paul rewrites it. And it's powerful. And when we look at it with Western eyes and we don't understand what Paul's doing, we look at it and we think, oh, the Bible suppresses women. Uh, it absolutely doesn't. And you're going to see why right now, I, th- I think, if I'll do a good job of it. First of all, as we sang this morning, we trust Jesus. Our hearts belong to Him, and we say, I trust you fully. And we don't always like what He wants for us, but we can always trust that it's good. Right? There's plenty we don't understand, and there's questions we ask of God, and sometimes we even feel angry when things happen in our lives. But at the end of the day, we trust Jesus. He is trustworthy. He is reliable. He is always good. He has an eternal plan in mind, and we are His. We know, he knows what He's doing with us. And notice how Paul says to the wives, Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And in Ephesians, he explains it a little bit better. And here's, I think it would be a super vulnerable thing if what Paul is saying is, you know, your husband has to be the be-all and the end-all in your life, and you have to do everything he says. That's obviously not what he's saying. What he's coming and saying to wives, the fact, first of all, the fact that he's writing to wives, that would have never happened in these times. The Bible puts men and women on equal footing. The Bible teaches absolute equality and value and worth and dignity uh, between men and women completely, of all races, all nationalities, all ethnicities, all genders, all uh, age, gener- all generational gaps, all academic gaps, all wealth brackets, absolute equality. Why? Because we're all made in the image of God. We are all equal, equally valuable for that reason alone. But Paul comes and he writes to, and, and he gives the wives an instruction. That's a powerful thing because, first of all, he's addressing someone in the household that culturally would have never been addressed. He's already lifting the woman in terms of respect and dignity and showing that in Jesus she has a role, a way that she can bring the gospel to bear in her family. And he doesn't say, submit to your husband because he's smarter than you, stronger than you, better than you. But submit to your husband as unto the Lord. And in Ephesians we find out that the picture that a marriage can have, it says there's a mystery about marriage and the mystery is this, that our marriages are an example of Christ and the church. That the wife's way with the husband should reflect the church's way with Christ. Loving him, honoring him, lifting him up. Now, unfortunately, I've never met a husband as good as Jesus in any way. And so wives have to work extra hard to find good things about their husbands, to build them up, to not tear them down, to not manipulate them, to not try to rule over them to not make their husbands the be-all and the end-all, but to kind of look past their husbands and to see Christ and to say, I trust Jesus, 
And he has put you and I in a relationship that can reflect him to the world. A, a friend of ours asked us, uh, she, she's been in a long-term relationship for many years, two decades, uh, but not, never married the gentleman and said, why, why, what, what do you and your wife believe about divorce? I said, well, so, so I, I, we wouldn't get divorced because of you. And she's confused, and I wasn't really sure where I was going with it, but I, um, I was a little bit confused too. But I really felt like God, God dropped it. And she said, why? Which gave me two seconds to think. It's like, because what, what I believe is that Jesus has made a covenant to those who believe in him. And that his covenant is good, and that he will never turn his back on that covenant. And that his covenant with me is not about my behavior, or, or his covenant is based on him. On, on his reliability, on his death, on his resurrection, and I just have to trust him. And my Bible teaches me that one of the ways, one of the windows that I can show the world the covenant that Jesus has with the church is my marriage to my wife. And by us accepting each other, loving each other, serving each other, and her role in submission to me, and my role in lovingly leading, shows the world the window into the gospel. It's not the gospel but it's because of the gospel, and it's a window into the gospel. She cried, and she said, I wish I could believe that. In other words, that's a good truth. That's a better truth. And I was happy to say, that's great. The Bible teaches we come by faith alone. My marriage isn't going to save me. My husbanding is not going to save me. But I can, have a, I can expect a certain qu- kind of quality marriage because I belong to Jesus and because my wife belongs to Jesus. Wives, this, you must imagine how awkward it is for me to be standing here as a gentleman speaking to wives. And, and single ladies, please don't um, disclude yourself. And gentlemen. And Peter says that uh, Peter says this interesting thing. He says, uh, wives have a gentle and quiet spirit. That's different to wives don't say anything. That's different to wives, you know, it's gentle and quiet spirit. You can have fire. You can be passionate. You can be the life of the party, and a lot of you actually are. But you can still have a gentle and quiet spirit. And Peter says, God finds that very lovely, which means that as the more that a Christian man becomes like God, the more he's going to love what God loves. And what do you think he's going to end up loving about his wife? Something about her spirit, her gentle and quiet spirit. In other words, as we come towards Christ, there's a lot about us that changes. There's a lot of vulnerability. There's a lot of open-handedness. If we give up and we say, Lord, I submit my life to you, but we kind of look past each other, to see Jesus, and this is why I've put the cross there, because the, the, the crown there, because it only makes sense if we're looking at Christ. It does not make sense if we're basing how I'm going to respond to Nas based on her response to me, and it becomes a, a, a face-off. It's a, we're back in the West, and we've got our hands on the holster. And who's going to show love first? I'm not going to show love till you show love. And we're waiting for each other. I have a job before God that I'm accountable for to love my wife, to lay my life down for her, to figure out what's good for her, to figure out what she fears. I read a book to my embarrassment. I'd never thought of the question. He said a simple question. The guy said a simple question that 
Christian husbands can ask their wives is, is there anything that you're fearful of that I could pray for? I went, I've been husbanding Nas for 15 years. What's she got to be afraid of? So I was like, put the book down, Nas. This guy has this dumb question. But what do you think? Anything you're afraid of that I could pray for? Yeah. I'm so glad you asked. What? It's my job under God, like Christ, to come and to find out what's going on in her heart, what's going on in her mind, to not be the solution, but to be part of the solution. I'm not the gospel, but I can treat her a certain way because of the gospel and in a way that shows her the gospel. All right, I'll pray for that, and I'll ask you how it's going. Dang it. I'll ask Nas just to come and talk to the wives quickly, just for, for two minutes on, on uh, my behalf, because I think it would, it would be helpful. Morning. Um, yeah, when we were talking about this, <laughs> I read it after um, we preached last Sunday. I was like, oh, Mark's got a fun one coming up. Um, submission is pretty powerful, and it is a profound truth, and I love that that's my role. Um, but it's not based on personality. I think people can think it's easier for some personalities to submit than others. Um, God has asked all of us to submit one to another, and it's not easier for some. Um, it is our privilege to go to God and to ask us, ask Him to change our, our nature and our character. And as we look at Him, to trust Him with the person that we submit to, whether it's leadership, whether it's a spouse, a husband, um, whether it's in your workplace. Um, that we trust God and the people around us don't have to earn it. Mark doesn't have to prove that he's worthy of my submission. Um, I submit to him because of who God is and I can see that Mark submits his life to God. Um, and I have to trust that God is in it. Now, God's not going to let me just stay in a dangerous place or any of us. So that's not what he's asking. Don't just stick around if it's dangerous. But we do stick around and we trust God in the process and we look at the person that we're married to I look at my husband and I say in spite of you I'm going to submit because of who God is to you and to me um, and I just ask please don't limit yourself based on your personality whether or not you're a good submitter or not um, look to Jesus ask him to change your character your nature to be one that can trust him that means you can look at your spouse and you can lean in and you can be the best partner possible and our marriages can reflect what God has asked us and that's Christ in the church. Thanks, Mark. Great. Thank you. That's great. And so, wives, the reason you can submit is because you trust Jesus, not because not you trust your man. The biggest rebuke my wife ever gave me was in an argument. She just said, I just don't feel loved. I, got, I had one job to do, love her, like Christ loves the church. Mark, you could be right with this. I don't know. You could be very right. But the way that you, you're dealing with it, I don't feel loved. <sighs> yeah, sorry. Let's retreat. Let's go find Jesus. And then let's come back at this again. So, we sub so you submit because you trust Jesus. Because you, your guy's never going to deserve it. He's just not. And if you think he does, then you've got a bigger problem because you've made him to be Jesus. Uh, you've got to see him in all of his flaws and weaknesses and look past him to Jesus. 
Um, and then, guys, we, we can learn to love uh, like, like Jesus does. We really can. When you describe your wives, when someone says to you, what's your perfect woman? I hope you describe your wife. She has dark hair, a few, few gray hairs coming through. <laughs> she doesn't eat Tom Yum soup with seafood in it at least once a month. She starts getting twitchy. Someone said to me, he goes, what? I think I've met someone like that. Yeah, you probably have. It's my wife. No, I mean, what's your perfect woman? No, what you're asking is, what's my perfect 2D image on a page that has no life? What I want to tell you is, what is my perfect tactile personality, mind, heart, being, partner, walk together, serve Jesus together, with limitations, with flaws, with pros and with cons? That's my perfect woman. Because every weakness she has, God can empower me to love her in that. And every strength that she has, God can empower me to encourage that in her. And I can learn slowly, and you can too. We'll go quickly with the others. Then Paul says, children, obey your parents in everything. This is the most amazing statement. Maybe we, I've said this whole year. Do you know why? Think about what Paul's doing. What is he doing? He's speaking to children. No one has ever addressed children with such importance that they would write scripture to them. No one but one. Who was it? Jesus. His disciples say, no, go away. He's too busy. And Jesus says, no, let them come to me. Bring them. As parents, if you're a parent, if you're not a parent, if you're single and during worship, when worship goes quiet, some kid busts out, I want to go to crash. You're like, oh, what a feral child. I'll never raise a child like that. Just remember, God loves them, feral and all. Doesn't make them okay. Now, here's the thing with children. Obey your parents in the Lord and then address as fathers and, and it, both parents. And if, the, if you're in a situation where there's only one parent in the home, God will have to give you special grace for that. But there is a role that fathers have in the family in, in a perfect way. If we can build that way, praise God, there is a role that a father has in the family. And I, and I think that is to give an example of what God is like. Fathers, what does Paul say to them? Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We can father in a way that either helps our children see what God is like or hinders our children from seeing what God is like. We can give them a bunch of rules, and, and, you know, and as they get, one, get close to one, we just lift the bar. Oh, they're mature enough, we'll just take it up a little bit. Or we can come alongside and we can show what God is like. Dads, the best thing that you can get ready to do is ask for forgiveness because you are not God. And at times, your grumpiness, your selfishness, your something will come out, and you will have to go on your knees to that little three-year-old and look in the eyes and say, I'm sorry, God loves you so much. And he is, he is so patient with you and so kind to you. And he will discipline you because you, you, you've got things to learn. But my grumpiness right now was not okay. I'm sorry. One day I had to get down on my knees and I had to say to my children, one in particular, you should be disciplined for your attitude. But I'm so angry that it's not right for me to discipline you. And I'm so sorry for that. 
because a loving, a more loving father would be able to discipline you right now. But my selfishness has got in the way. And I think they were com- confused. So I'm not getting disciplined. <laughs> it's like a win. <laughs> and yet, you know what happened? Tears come down our eye. Sorry, Daddy. And we forgive each other. And as best as possible, we show our children what a loving God is like. And a loving God disciplines and has boundaries for their good to guide them in life, to point them to, to Him, to make others a priority. A loving God doesn't just let their children. We were at a cafe yesterday. And the loving mother just let their feral child just scream and yell and shout and take over the whole cafe and never rebuke their child. They're affecting everyone. That's not loving. That's not good parenting. That child will, will grow up one day. The mother will go, I don't know why they like this. I gave them everything they ever wanted. Exactly. That's why they like this. What they needed was someone who loved them enough to say no and yes. And to discern when it was right to say no and yes. And why? So dads, get ready to say sorry. And that's, that's our out. That's, I mean, I, that's my go-to. When I'm being a terrible dad, I know I can go there straight away. Hey, kids, come on here. Jump on the couch. Just want to let you know something. I'm not perfect. But God is. What, what, the way I was being a dad was pretty lousy and terrible. He's not. So you've got to please forgive me and then look to him. In other words, don't grow up and blame it on me. Um, you need to look to him. He's good. He's loving. He's patient. He's kind. And wherever I fall short, look pa- past me and look to him. And you pray for me, please. All right, Dad, got it. So you're not the man? Nope, I'm not the man. Now, go tidy your rooms, because I'm still your father. <laughs> and then lastly, bond servants, that's slaves in some translations, obey in everything those uh, who are your earthly masters. Not by eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving Jesus the Lord. Um, not going to talk much about that, but just to say, it's just, just work as if Jesus is your boss. Look past your boss and, and work as hard as you would if Jesus was in the office next door and on his door was my boss. Work like that. Work with joy. Work with energy. Work, you know, my son Ezekiel, he's 12. He gets a little bit of homework every now and then. He can't do it for 10 minutes without showing us. Hey, look, Dad, look what I've done. I see that, Zeke. It's one more sentence. Why don't you go write a paragraph and then show me that? Look, look at, look at that. I see it. One more color. Why don't you go finish it, please, and then show me it all? And when we're working for Jesus, he doesn't t- Hey, do you see what I, did? I put in nine hours today? I was kind to my colleagues. I dealt with ex- whatever. And Jesus goes, I know. Well done. Look past your boss because they're not always going to deserve your labor. And the reason is this. Paul says something very amazing. Slaves could not have an inheritance. They could work. They could earn money. They could even buy back their freedom. But they would never have an inheritance. Jesus said, Paul says, work for Jesus. That's how you go to work every day for Jesus. And he is going to give you an eternal inheritance. In other words, Paul is saying, slaves, you're not a slave to him. You're one of the family members. 
The life you have here on earth is a life for God's glory, and you share in an eternal inheritance. You're in with the family. You can't buy back your freedom because you're not a slave. You're a son. You're a daughter. You're completely in. But again, the gospel has undone it. The slaves may be standing in the back of the room are thinking, oh, gee, you know, I wonder if I should get the kettle going. It sounds like this letter is drawing to a close. And then all of a sudden they hear, slaves. And they're like, what? We've never been spoken to before. You mean we have rights in the Christian community? Absolutely. And masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. In every single case, whether it be husbands, fathers, or masters, every time they are under submission. Remember, Jesus is your Lord. Remember, Jesus is over you. You're not the, you're not the main man. Masters, remember that you have a master. Treat people, if you're an employee, and the best, the, the, the best way to talk about it culturally is either you're an employee or you're an employer. If you're an employer, treat people the way that you, you want Jesus to treat you, the way that he does treat you. And if you're an employee, work as if your boss were Jesus. I heard a great story this week. Uh, I, I think it's okay to say Malcolm, because uh, we were, we were basically gone. Malcolm told me this great story of um, he, something happened at work, and he, had, he, had, uh, he got in an argument with the boss, and he was right, and he lost out on, on money that was his, and, and, and there was an argument, but he was in the right. And it es- kept escalating, because justice, right, his rights put, put him in a good position, so don't let go. And a Christian colleague came and said, I think you should just, this was many, many years ago, I think you should go and, and uh, ask forgiveness for your attitude. What? I'm not wrong. And he did. The next day he went to his boss and just said, hey, could you, you know, please forgive me for my attitude in this thing and dropped it. How can Christians do that? Because that commission that day, that job, that promotion is not the end of it. My boss is Jesus. He has my life in his hands. He can open and close doors. He provides my needs. And if he opens and closes doors, or, and then uh, it's up to him. And what he can do is eventually it says, Jesus will judge in the end. So I leave it. Why? Jesus will figure it out. Will it all come good to me in this life? No. I promise you it will not. Will everything you owe come to you this life? No. Will no injustice happen to you? Ju- injustice will happen to you. Will no one more greedy and horrible get a promotion? Someone more greedy and horrible will get a promotion that you are better suited to. That's not the question. The question is, can you trust Jesus with your life? Keep a good attitude. Killer told a great story of, an, of a... Of a um, intern on a tv set and the intern made a mistake that cost a lot of money to the production and the directors went in a room and said whose fault is this who's and the one director said it's mine and they all laughed and said but this is like a rookie error why would you make such a dumb mistake i'm sorry it's mine walked out embarrassed walked out and the intern found out about this heard about this they thought they were done intern came to the director and said why did you take the blame you know it was me and the, and the uh, director said, well, I believe that Jesus entered this world to take my blame on the cross and that he died for me and that he rose and has, and has forgiven me and that I have a relationship with God. And since I started believing that, I've been looking for an opportunity to do something like that for someone else. 
And today my dream came true. That's the grace that we've received. Is it just? No, not in that way. Is it fair? Not for the person who bears the cost. But it's gracious and it's kind and it's trusting. Can I leave you for a minute and I'll take us to communion to think about the relationships you have. You may have all of those. You may have some of those. You will be one of those. Can you just put up the last slide? Oh, there we go. Well done, Steph. You're amazing. Basically, what Paul has done is he's rewritten the household code and put Christ right at the very center of it. And he said the way that we live in all of our relationships have to be in accordance with Christ. We're swimming upstream. I know, in Western, in Western culture, we're swimming majorly upstream. But these relationships are not the gospel. They are because of the gospel, and they're a window into the gospel. It can help the world see what Christ has done. Can you take a minute and just reflect? And, and I, just, I just pray that God would give you faith or encouragement or freedom where maybe you've blown it. Just to start again. Receive the grace of God to have another go. Start afresh.